Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the day quill of Extreme Metal Podcasts. I am the Death Metal Guy, aka, did anyone ever consider if Euronymous just had really negative vibes? And, I mean, he did. <laughs> but, like, maybe it was, like, kind of a toxic friend. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of, like, a toxic influence on the Norwegian black metal community. Yeah, I mean, there is just, yeah. like, maybe he was gaslighting Varg a lot. I mean, in a sense, <laughs> I guess that's kind of Varg's argument. He, he, had to, he had to enforce the community standards. Euronymous <laughs> violated the non-aggression treaty, you know. And I'm the black metal guy, a.k.a. I legit couldn't come up with an a.k.a. this week. You know, there's a first for everything. Well, you were busy. How was your trip? Um, you know, the, uh, the art was great. The, uh, ancient medieval stone architecture was great. The, um, the searing blue Mediterranean sky was excellent. Uh, the rolling hills were also nice. Uh, the norovirus, not so much. <laughs> I mean, uh, these days, that's, that's sort of like a classic part of a trip overseas pretty much any time, or... Like, I don't know, even going too close to the beach, it gets you half the time. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, you've got to kind of like, I, th I think lesson learned. I've got to plan. You, you basically just have to plan on getting sick from traveling at some point. It's just like, okay, I got to, you, you can't even take trips that are less than two weeks long. No, it's, it's, like, it's, it's cool, man. I managed to get violently ill while you were gone, too. Uh, if oh, that's wonder, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If anyone's wondering about uh, the condition of my voice, I am getting over a remarkably bad cold or some sort of viral infection that is currently taking out half of my local metal scene because of the typhoid Marys that have to go to every show. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've had that to contend with. Work's been tough. My NSA handler's been broadcasting soft rock hits of the early 90s into my ears. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's been difficult, man, but I, I, I'm glad to have you back. It wasn't the same without you. I'm glad to be back, too. <laughs> all right, well, before we, before we get on with all the chicanery, the usual cleanup at the top of the hour... Uh, follow me, the Death Metal Guy, on Facebook at Terminus Podcast. Follow the Black Metal Guy on Instagram at Terminus Extreme Metal. Follow our harried intern Hyper Sham at both those pages because he's taking point on those right now. And then if you are really enthusiastic, feel free to support us on Patreon, where $3 and up gets you access to all the Terminus Prime bonus episodes, and $5 and up gets you access to the Terminus Black Circle, where, uh, you know, as our private Discord server, where we primarily discuss uh, developments in the world of wrestling and post our rarest pepes. So, with all that out of the way... Oh, wait. Uh, oh? Also... I've, I've realized we've been forgetting one form of just traditional and mundane shilling, which is just, uh, please like and subscribe if you're listening on YouTube. And even if you're not listening on YouTube, if you're like a podcast, podcast person, like, if you've got a YouTube account, uh, you know, if you want a, a really easy way to support is to subscribe and like. It seems like it doesn't matter, but, you know, it, it all has, you know, the subscriptions certainly have a signal boosting effect. And it's like, dude, I feel like, um, 
like like terminus subscribers have been crawling crawling to get over 650 <laughs> it's it's you know we we, so. we have to have our, uh, our our cool 666 subscriber moment you know, we'll take a screenshot oh and stuff. Yeah, yeah we'll yeah. be those guys. It'll be you know, we'll, we'll finally ascend to being a real metal podcast as soon as. You hear that? What? Uh, uh, nah. Don't worry about it. It must have been uh, rats. Hey, all. This is Brandon from Cromley, and you're listening to Terminus. All right, and we are back from lamenting our maladies to discuss a record I've been looking forward to for a long time. This is uh, Tyrannomord by Atigar out on Eisenwald. And this is the first full length of Atigar. Um, and I've had my eye on this band since their EP, which is, the title is in something like, I don't know, like old... It's either, like, Middle German or, like, Swiss dialect German or something. It's Us der Hochundnumsut, which I'm sure I just totally mangled. Yeah, um, I, uh, I can usually help you with the German pronunciations, but this dialect, no fucking way, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's, um... So, so yeah, so that... So this EP came out in 2019, and it was almost kind of a, like, full-length unto itself. It was very complete feeling. Um, oh, yeah, it was 27 minutes long. I mean, by 2022 standards, that's uh, that's that's two full-lengths. <laughs> um, and, uh, and what was remarkable about it was it was a, a worship project, um, and not for the usual suspects. It was a Kvist worship record, and uh, I, I, that's a band I mention, you know, about as much as I can on this show, uh, but for those who, who need a reminder, right, Kvist is this Norwegian band from the mid-90s that did a one-off record in 96 and then just disappeared, and early 96, January 1st. Um... And, you know, it shared some members with some bands. Like, there's, like, one degree of separation to, like, Ergahal, weirdly. Hmm. Um, but, like, Kvist did is, like, you know, a prime example of that kind of, like, aristocratic black metal that we talk about with, like, bands like Dawn from Sweden and stuff like that, right? Sort of, like, the, the, the classical the neoclassical impulse that you have in a band like Emperor, but, like, taken... Not, like, taken more seriously, but, like, almost just used more... Developed in a more effective way and fully integrated into the guitar style. And so, Kvist, in some way, is symphonic BM, but... And it does have keyboards, but, like, without a lot of the trappings of the genre. Um... And has this sort of like dense, storming riffing, and uh, nobody's even bothered trying to imitate it for a very long time. Until this year, when we also had the Gregorian record come out that was highly influenced by that. But so this first Atega record, like the EP, was 
like basically just an effort to get completely inside the songwriting of Kvist, which was a formidable challenge. Uh, and, you know, they, they nailed it. They basically just wrote the second Kvist record, which is extremely impressive. Um, Scene-wise, these guys are part of the Helvetic Underground Committee scene and uh, who have been sort of, uh, you know, quiet but steadfast supporters of the show, actually, for quite a while. Um, they occasionally just, you know, talk to us on the orb. Um, <laughs> and uh, we've reviewed two, at least two of their bands, like Heon, um and the main sort of the, the vocalist and strings and keys guy in this in this band is also in Lycaon. And uh we've also reviewed uh Goifer, which it's not clear who's connected to that, but Goifer has some also has some big fist influence and some common DNA with a Tigar, I think. Yeah, um, and I was also sent a copy of the uh Death Void Terror record by uh the guys over at uh, Repose Records who are a big oh, re- supporter of this scene. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, Repose has repped them really hard. Did uh, uh, you like the Death Void Terror? Yeah, I do. It's sort of um, it, it's got that kind of like ortho cavern thing, but it's presented a little bit more like ambient music. Um, it's it, it's the kind of thing. It's in a style that I don't usually like, but it's a really good execution of it that I did like. Yeah, um, and so like other you know. Other bands from this scene, the other really big one would be Ungfell. And mm-hmm. uh, both of these guys are in Ungfell. Um, and they also both play live in Dakma, who had had one out this last year. Um, they're credited both as Fouth. And if you go to their artist page on Metal Archives, it just gives you another pseudonym. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, they, they're like, they have, they, they have the same first name for this project. Um... And, uh, and yeah, so to me, this is like the HUC flagship band now. I would say this album marks the ascension. Um, it, I'm, I'm biased towards it personally because of the aesthetic, but like, th- you know, this Terrena Mort is a very accomplished record and it's, it's really a breath of fresh air this year. Um, so first I think we should just do some... I mean, do you want to do any preliminary thing before I make people listen to Kvist? <laughs> Let's do the Kvist, just because that's on the mm-hmm. brain, and then I'll give my overall. Yes. So this is just a back context for this record, um, is like this this influence that has at, at the foundation of the sound. Um, so we're just going to listen to the the beginning of uh, their only record, For uh, Kunsten Ma Wie Ewig Wieg, which means something like, For the Art We Must Give Way. Uh, or we must yield, uh, yield to the art. And uh, this is just like a minute into the first track, Ars Manifestia. Oh 
every time I hear those uh, those hard panned guitars on either side, it's like, oh yeah, we're we're back in the mid nineties. Yeah. So, um, important things for that, right? I mean, if you know, you could describe the sound on that record, the the Kvist sound is based heavily on like pre Nightside Emperor, um, like the, but with the harmonies much more fully developed and uh, the sense of fear that, that Kvist have and that have inherited from them is like where Emperor were sort of like, you know, we've talked before about how some of the melodies kind of date heavily, right? Mm-hmm. It can be a little spooky sounding um, and how they can maybe like fixed around, you know, Grieg and other more sort of like romantic composers. Kvist carries it in a more modern sounding direction. Mm-hmm. And both in the sense that it sounds a bit more like modernist symphonic music, but also just like um, the harmonies haven't aged at all. They haven't dated the 90s. Um, and it has just this, yeah, this really rich sense of texture and mood and I don't know if you notice this, but something that I've always like, you know, I don't have a musical word for it, but when I hear those chords, right, they're all these like big sliding chord riffs. And yet it always seems like they're twisting, like the bottom, the bottom line is sort of becoming the top one and vice versa. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, kind of it's sp- spiraling. The sort of the, the the root tone of it is changing, even though it feels like the intervals that it's operating in are kind of small. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's like looking at like a gothic cathedral or something, like and all just just strangely strangely moving material. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, and um. Yeah, so I guess that that's the salient stuff for for the legacy of Fist, and I think you know the important thing about Tyrannomord is that now that a Tiger have sort of have that sound down, and you know I highly recommend checking out the old thing. They really are building out from there, and there's plenty of distinctive stuff about this record, and you can hear them very clearly staking out their own claim as artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Yeah, what, what what are your impressions? So I am not the uh, the dedicated Kvist guy that you are. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, honestly, I hadn't even heard that record until you had mentioned them on the show previously. Mm-hmm. Um, just one of those like <clears throat> weird isolated records that I never got around to, kind of thing. Yeah, but, for sure. So my immediate comparisons have to be elsewhere, <clears throat> and the big one for me. Um, on this record was uh, this sort of like mid to late nineties, maybe into the early two thousands era of like black metal with extras, you know, not quite full fledged symphonic black metal, but leaned heavily on melody would have some keyboards would have some like little bits of flair added. But, you know, during the period where black metal was kind of trying to find its footing again, you know, this is sort of like pre trench coat when everyone decided that like the matrix came out and that saved black metal and everybody did that for like four (laughs) years, you know? Um, 
But my immediate points of comparison are going to be stuff that's like not quite symphonic from that era. So I'd be looking at the first few Satyricon records, uh, the earliest Dimmu Borger stuff. Uh, Old Man's Child actually is a weirdly big reference point here. Because um, pe- a lot of people don't remember the earliest Old Man's Child records come out in like... God, the first one I think is like 96. It's a lot earlier than you think it is. Um, it's like borderline second wave. Yeah, for Born of the Flickering is 96. And uh, even Keep a Kalesson that also originates back in like 97, 98 territory. Um, so basically, you've got uh, the, the general conceit is epic black metal, but obviously that's kind of a vacuous term. But what it means in this case is, um, you know, before the sound of like what black metal in an epic mode sounds like, you know, which we've decided these days is like sort of triumphant and almost power metal. Mm-hmm. Back then, it was more an effort to just take sort of traditional black metal ideas and refine them, make them more ornate, as you said. This also bears... And, and blow them up to a really big scale. Like yeah. epic, when people said epic back in the day, they, I mean, they still sometimes mean it this way, but they used to just mean like like long songs with like heavy arrangement and stuff. Yeah, and there's definitely the heavy arrangement here, but the other thing that they maintained is not not using the epic idea as a pathway to accessibility. These are still Mm -hmm. very, like, down-the-line black metal songs. These aren't going to make sense to someone who hasn't listened to the genre before. Um, And I think it's really interesting. It's a record that relies heavily on its structure and really relies on the listener paying a lot of attention because if you're not focused on this, this can kind of blitz by, which is not the band's fault, it's the listener's fault. Because uh, a lot of the threads they're pulling on in terms of making these songs engaging require the listener to kind of remember motifs and remember the sort of narratives these songs are, are built around. Um, I think it's really cool. It's It's referential to a scene that I'm not especially interested in. Um, just because this was sort of the, this style was sort of the hangover style when I was getting into black metal as a kid. So it was like, this was like the recently dated sound that I haven't gone back to that much. However, this is an excellent articulation of that sound. And if you are into this style, I, I recommend it without any reservations. Um, with that being said, uh, we should probably like listen to some music. Um, yeah, let's do it. So uh, I've got the first sample. This is off of uh, Iserni Plag. Yeah. And uh, forgive us on the pronunciation. I've never been to Switzerland. I don't know what they sound like over there. Um, <clears throat> so this is one that I want to show off to kind of talk about the extras. Because to a few of the big prominent things that are featured here that are not totally black metal standard are going to be um, some synths here and there, uh, a lot of clean guitar work. And some big kind of bellowing, almost clean vocals. Um, you know, 75% clean vocals, I guess, if you want to mm-hmm. give it a percentage. Um, and I think all three of those are represented in this sample. And you'll be able to get a pretty good idea of how these are integrated into the sound and aren't necessarily the, the hook that these songs are built around. Thank you. 
So yeah, pretty pretty immediately you get all of those big kind of extra features. Um, so we open with that clean guitar break. That's after about a minute, minute and a half of music on this song. Um, you've got the uh, the big synths. They use a lot of choral synths. And then you've got the sort of dramatic theatrical vocal presence. Now, all of these And features, also that sample. There's a, a sample of a female singer, right? Like... Yeah, I didn't know if that was like a session thing or if it was a sample. Um, I well, it's really cool, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so all of these would have been fairly normal features to hear in black metal from this this sort of period that I'm talking about, this late '90s period. Um, but the thing was, back then, it was sort of a process of like throwing shit at a wall and seeing what sticks. It was a matter of we got a black metal record and. By God, we've got a female vocalist, so now we're the. This is the black metal record with the female vocalist on it. You right, know what right, I mean? Right. They they would yeah. feel the need to, to use these sorts of gimmicks, constantly, and yeah. to build songs around them, and they ended up being kind of unnatural. Um, what a Tigard does is incorporate all these things into a really unified whole. Uh, you never get the sense that any of these songs are relying on one of these extras to carry their weight. They're all folded into this. Um, the, the whole package feels very theatrical in a way. Um, this is at least to some degree a concept album. And even without knowing that, you can kind of get that feeling throughout the record. Yeah, it is. It actually has a narrative structure and Although you, yeah, although you wouldn't necessarily know it on the first listen, it, um, the album, like, after one go through, it really starts to click that it's narrative. Um, and it, uh, and the whole, the whole record has been written around that. Um, and it's certainly just very eventful songwriting. You could hear that right there, right? I mean, the, uh, the, the transition into that sort of like the riff trading at the end mm-hmm. um, or, you know, the bellowing that faded out the sample. Um, yeah, the whole the whole. So uh, the, the way this connects to second wave black metal is really important, I think. Um, the, the fact that this uh, you really never hear any of the quote unquote epic melodies that you would expect from like a 2022 record. Most of these are really just deeply connected to sort of traditional second wave melodies, including like weird stuff, like the one thing that I call a Sorhin riff in the notes, that like mm-hmm. really gnarly angular one. Is that is that a Sorhin riff, Dad? You, um, you be the well, judge. fist riffs can be kind of like that too, but Sorhin is in that school of like, I, you know, just the more time goes on, the more I'm just like, I kind of like, aside from Gorgoroth, I kind of like these, you know, Kvist, Dawn, Soren, the best of the 90s Scandinavian bands. And, um, you know, so yeah, it is sort of like, you know, tightly coiled, highly, highly dissonant, but sort of folky sounding. Yeah, yeah, it's a good comparison. Um, In fact, my next sample basically has something else that sounds kind of Soren-y. However, the the one other thing I want to say about this sample is um like uh the the watery production on the uh the arpeggiated stuff right mm-hmm. now just using clean arpeggios i mean gorgoroth does that like a bunch of other bands in the 90s did that but the um but that tone 
uh, it, it just sounds very gothy. And mm-hmm. it reminds me of, you know, a band you've mentioned a lot recently, which is Verdunkel. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as, I mean, Ruins of Beverest. So the gothier side of the Wad Van scene. Um, and I was mentioning that whole group of bands, uh, and, you know, like Nagelfar and Lunar Aurora and stuff, when we were talking about Furton. Uh And that is another group. I, I feel like that constellation of sort of early 2000s, highbrow pagan BM, or late, late 90s, I mean, Nagelfar was late 90s, highbrow German and Central European pagan BM is becoming like its own sort of gen- point of genesis, point of origin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Atigar are really sort of picking up that lineage as well as the 90s Scandinavian stuff, um, I think. Um, but yeah, so the, continuing about Sorin, I guess, I mean, the thing that makes Sorin a very different from this band is that it is very ripping and... Uh, punkish or thrashing yeah um you said something smart in the notes about how the ategar's concern for sort of eventful songwriting that's always driving somewhere mm-hmm. seems like you could it has that background influence by more kinetic music like thrash definitely yeah that that you could take for granted in the 90s right that that was like just the that was that's like just the, how you made metal back then yeah yeah it's like supposed to be like driving and aggressive like and also maybe have cool epic melodies um (laughs) and you know that's been mostly lost especially in the most ambitious big canvas black metal these days um and and so like most of this record is not like it doesn't thrash for the most part right It, it, it 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 blasts and it glides but here on the middle track um, we actually get some Soren-esque thrashing, uh, and that sort of, um, you know, that sort of influence comes to the fore. So, uh, yeah, it's right, right on the heart of the record. Um, and this, this is Uslikigiftig Schlaf Verwaked or something.
so at the blast, we're back to one of the uh, core riffs of the song. But there, basically, th they've just put the beginning of a mid-90s black metal song in the middle of their song. <laughs> right? Doesn't it, it... That plays like an attack riff sequence, right? Like like fast thrashing riff one, uh, heavy crushing riff two, let's play riff one again and riff two again. Yeah. Which is interesting because this is, um, they, they use a lot of very sort of aggressive arrangements, but the music itself does not feel particularly aggressive, at least not in the traditional sense. I think this part does. Oh, we, yeah, we've talked about this before, like our, our differences in the way we perceive sort of like aggressive black metal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting, because I think one of the other things, <coughs> excuse me, one of the other things that I get off this record really heavily is, um, I'm starting to think there's a lot of influence from, like, the Hellenic scene. Um, there's something very Greek, very, like, rotting Christ and septic flesh about you, the way these guys arrange songs. You might be thinking about the keyboards there, right? I mean, I was thinking, like, Bathory, right, when it's got the da-da-da at the I, I, end, like like a One Road to Acebe kind of thing, but that actually is also very, like, Greek. Yeah, I wasn't thinking so much in, in terms of just the keyboards, more in, like, how these songs are paced and structured. Like, the Greek bands always have this very, like, patient quality to them. They're making, the Greek bands kind of make, like, old-school heavy metal epics out of black metal parts. Mm -hmm. And a, a lot of ways, this record feels kind of similar. Like, like we were talking about, you know, the being engaged with, you know, things happening like a thrash song. It's also kind of like doing a, a big epic heavy metal song, but in, like, 85, you know? Yeah, I mean... So, in terms of... I certainly agree that, like, aggression is not the primary musical goal on this record at all. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, Kvist actually has parts that are just, like, flattening tritone power chord parts. Yeah. Or parts that, like, really just sound like Emperor... Early Emperor Blast riffs. It's, um... You know, you're not going to have anything that's just like that... Uh that you know that marduk adjacent on here right um i would say like a part like this feels aggressive to me because of the intense syncopation and because of the way that that the sort of the guitar riff sort of um uh you know sort of yeah i don't i don't know there's a lot of motion in the guitar part i think it thrashes. i get what you mean yeah no i definitely it's, agree that it feels like a, a point of climactic action in the narrative yeah yeah, it, it, I definitely moshed around my room to this. For, for me, for me, for a riff to feel aggressive, it has to feel like my dad's yelling at me again. So you know, it's, it's just a different standard. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's also you know, it's your death metal guy thing versus my black metal guy thing. Like, I for me, like you can have like a cold knifing guitar tone like that, and it can sound like just the, the sort of the cutting eerie cutting sound can be its own kind of aggression. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the very Soren thing. That sort of like moonlight, like the sort of like moonlight blade kind of vibe in the mm -hmm. in, in the tone. But um, but yeah. So other thing. Well, speaking of big riffs, right? You know, we've emphasized that this record is not really trying to 
um, throw candy hooks out in front of people or give them what they think they're looking for by Epic. However, this record has about like three to four gigantic riffs um, and like that are part of like carefully paced climax sequences. This song builds to a, a two or three riff sequence that's just like uh, phenomenal. And uh, if you want to hear it, you have to listen to the record. <laughs> but we can listen to another big riff. Nice! <laughs> yeah! So uh, we got one of those cases where both of us sampled off the same song. And in what's kind of a rarity for us, uh, it's actually off the final track of the record, which is certainly the best one on the album yeah. to me. The closer's huge. It really it really earns its place as like the finale to the narrative of the record. Um, so like you were saying, this is not a record, this is not a big riff record. I would even go as far as to say this isn't really like, we've been talking a lot about older black metal, but what this isn't is like super riff-based music. There's a lot yeah, of yeah, very yeah. good riffs, but the riffs are never really the star of the show. Nothing in particular is ever really the star of the show. It's it's That's very a good way of putting it. It's a very flexible record. It really like waxes and wanes with what it wants to put its attention on in any given sequence, which is cool. Um, it's it's like it's sophisticated arrangement that isn't reliant on a single piece to carry it. However, the final track, uh, "Den Liebzir der Alter" or "Day Alter," God, this is such a weird dialect. Um, I keep I keep like saying different words trying to pronounce the actual ones. Um, <laughs> this song begins with a gigantic riff, and then uh, as soon as you hear it, you know, okay, yeah, we're we're really off to the races. This is the giant closer that the album deserves.
There's a lot of like uh, fancy little production tricks on this record. There, uh, the first time, first couple times I listened to this, I uh, did it on speakers. And now I'm listening through headphones. I didn't even pick up on those weird little whisper samples at the end there. The first time I heard it, it's pretty neat. So obviously, um, the big thing here is that uh, that just giant riff that we're opening with. And it's a, it's a, it's a huge sprawling riff. It's like a, a four part sequence. The whole thing takes about 30 seconds to play through and it gets played uh, about four times over the course of the song, but it's always introducing new riffs and new movements. Um, we do a simple ABAB there, but then the B gets substantially modified. The second time uh, it comes back, it's, it's lacking. It's sort of like a little intro bit changes the whole mood and the texture uh, of the music. One thing these guys are really good at is reusing melodies, but with different voicings or uh, just kind of like swapping it between cleaner distorted guitar or echoing it on a synth or something and kind of developing motifs out of whole cloth. Uh, That's really effective throughout the course of this record. And it all kind of really arrives on this final song. Um, they really pull out all the stops, and it's just remarkably fucking good. Yeah, so as far as, um, yeah, so my, my sample basically is going to pick off right where yours left off. I'll start it a little earlier so people have the, the lead up in their head again. But um, basically, you're going to hear another gigantic, maybe an even more gigantic riff, except... After a few repeat listens, I realized it's the same riff. talking about the changing of voicings mm-hmm. right like they do that th- that is the big riff from the beginning of the song but it has all the intervals changed and now instead of being this sort of uh valorous martial ascent right it it becomes this sort of sighing kind of uh sign downward motion right uh and it sort of you get some of that kvistish twisting but it twists all the way into a major key and whereas like that kind of like major key run at the end of the first riff you were comparing it to toke right yeah you know yeah. the dun, dun 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 yeah the sort of trill off the end of the riff um that sounds very uh sort of 
triumphant, glorious. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, the major key just sounds like lilting and sort of uh, tender and eerie. Um, that's a thing you could say about the whole record. It 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 feels quite ghastly throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when we get to the uh, what this record is about. Um, so it's it's a concept album based on the the assassination of the Byzantine emperor Leo Armenius in about in the early ninth century, um, and it's based specifically on a uh, Baroque German tragedy by uh, Andreas Griffius that deals with these events, um, and the. Uh, climax of the story right is obviously the assassination um occurs in the palace chapel of saint stephen during a midnight mass <laughs> so the you know there's there's a, a coup d'etat and the uh you know i get apparently leo of it, of course right leo usurps his throne and then eventually his usurper ambushes him during a midnight mass um and when you hear that, uh, when you hear that riff with the bells chiming over it, it it's it, it's like a sigh or an <coughs> exhalation. It's like a sigh or an exhalation, and it feels just for a minute like, whoa, that guy got stabbed. Thank you. 
with Spite is My Scepter, Blood is My Crown by Oppressive Descent on uh, the label we cover all the time, Inferno Profundus Records. <laughs> um, so, this does this one make you feel old? Or make termi- makes Terminus feel old? Oh, bringing them back? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because Oppressive Descent was one of the... That was one of the first episodes we did that got a lot of traction. Like, I, I can't remember what numerically it was. It could have been, like, number 10. It was pretty old, yeah. Pretty old, yeah. Um, And one of the first bands I found in our first season that I was just really stoked about. Um, So... So Oppressive Descent in some ways fits quite well into the modern USBM landscape, right? It's, uh, the last record was drawing, it was kind of this, um, well, yeah, so like on the last record, I liked it more than you, right? But we were able to kind of agree kind of on what was going on there. Well, to clarify just to clarify for the listeners, we're talking about Alchemy and War from 2020. There was also Astral Projections from Beyond the Grave in 2021 that we didn't cover. Did you listen to that one? Was there a full length in 2021? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. You just didn't this, realize? I, I think if I realized it, I was just like, well, too many records, can't keep track of them all. I got and you. And moved on. It's like, okay, well, it's, a, it's another full length a year after whatever. I'll wait to the next one. But yeah, wow, I definitely just uh, missed that one for sure. Uh, but thank you, that's an important correction. So uh, <laughs> so yeah, um, the two albums ago on Alchemy and War, uh, it was, um, the record had a sort of general kind of World War One-ish theme about it. Uh, and it had a very sort of... Uh, a powerful and consistent atmosphere that was sort of uh, long, flowing melodies, but delivered in a very somber and scowling way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with always sort of a cut above in terms of both the the chording and the song structures. Uh, and... Um, stylistically right your sort of your criticism which i think was valid uh to some extent was like that it it was that on a you know on a song like on a mechanical level songwriting level it was this kind of assemblage of various underground styles it was kind of like typified the modern usbm scene in that it was like here's some slavic stuff here's some franco-finnish stuff Here's, uh, it was a little bit of like a slideshow of the styles that he really liked, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing is that he was quite skilled in all of these, right? But there was some question as to like whether the oppressive descent sound had fully cohered. Um, and I remember you also talked a little bit about, say, like suggesting that there was some like the songwriting could have been a little more economical. Yeah, yeah, I would argue mm-hmm. that. Yeah, so, um, but we both, you know, found some real, uh, we could agree on some real highlights on that one, such as, uh, some of the, 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 like, the unfettered gleam of Lucifer's wings. (laughs) It's just a massive banger in the middle of that record. Uh, like, mid-tempo, and it had these sort of 
ornate flowering kind of uh, 19th century military band kind of melodies. Uh, you know, you could hear connections to things that are have are very trendy right now, like Vothana and Grazug or stuff and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But like the oppressive descent is tapping into things that are much older, you know, you know, tapping really into early 2000s type stuff. Um, so, uh, this record, uh, the first time I heard it, I was like, oh, I like the energy, but it, I'm not sure I like it as much as the last one, or maybe it's kind of a sidestep. And then the second time I listened to it, I was like, oh, this is just like really cool. <laughs> and I think we both agree it's a significant, it's actually a significant step up, step up from the last one. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, the last one I... I enjoyed well enough, but not enough for it to really stick around, uh, like in my rotation. This one probably will, though. Um, this one feels like this record just feels sharper in just mm -hmm. about every way. Yeah. Um, and I think that you, I, I was trying to figure it out myself because this is very much like to a large degree more of the same uh, from what's already been established of this band's mo. But I think you really nailed it in the notes when you said that a lot has been stylistically paired away. There's like fewer influences going into this record. And as a result, it's really refined. It's really focused. And I guess sort of my tagline for this thing is that this is the this is the best French black metal record of the year. Except that this is a guy from the U.S. And it's only because, you know, uh, Vehemont's put out the best power metal record of the year. But yeah, no, I think I, yes. I think that what's really been pared down is like I, there's really not a lot of the Slavic stuff. There's really not even a lot of the Finnish stuff. This is very focused on sort of traditional French black metal ideas. And it's just a really excellent execution of them. So w when you're thinking about French, what exactly do you mean? Are you thinking like Seigneur Valand, Kristallnacht, or I'm like thinking that's obviously that, big here. Yeah, that's going to be big there. something else. Well, too, yeah, right? I'm, I'm thinking of kind of a, a whole constellation of stuff. Because, you know, you got the Seigneur Valand, Kristallnacht. I'm also thinking of like Hero Lorne. I'm also thinking of... Uh, well, they're they're not French, but I'm thinking of Sun Hopfer. Um, at least oh, wait, isn't no Sun Hopfer is French, isn't it? They it's are the guy from Pest Noir. Yeah, it's a, it's a, the drummer from Pest Noir. Oh, I always for some reason I always think that Sun Hopfer is German or something. I think it's just because of the name. It's the name, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, Sun Hopfer, especially in sort of some of the structural ideas here, where he's trying to kind of very abruptly put gnarly second wave stuff next to fancier kind of florid French mm -hmm. riffing. Um, yeah. So there it's kind of a, so I guess what I would say is that, so we've cut down the regions, but there is like an expanse of French black metal that's being yeah. drawn off here. Osculum and Fom. Osculum and Fom. It's kind of, yeah. un, it's, it's kind of wild in the way that Bikira is, but it's not like, it's not, it's nah, that's, that's a reach. Um, yeah, the, um, yeah, sort of French, French black metal on the more, uh, 
stern or chivalric side and the less vampiric side, but still vampire adjacent. There's like a couple vampires in the army. They're vampires with really big swords. They're like the special forces, um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. The um um so uh so yeah, and the other big thing about this um that I think is a change is that so the last record was uh or the the one the, the last one we heard alchemy and war was uh the atmosphere was very much like sort of soaring over desolated battlefields right it was this de- it was this deliberately remote impersonal kind of look at trench hell from above and that kind of went with the songwriting which was just this this he really just sort of committed to the smoothly flowing, uh, shifting power chord style, like modified, sliding modified power chord style that he was finding as the common denominator for the Franco-Finnish stuff to like the Slavic stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there was a, I've started to realize, like, I think the Finnish stuff is, was, I think like a Finnish, like, what am I trying to say? I'm not that not so articulate tonight. Um, Satanic Warmaster's Up for Blue, I think, was big on that record. And I think is still big on this one, but in a much more subdued way, like in the background. Um, but on that one, he had this like very smoothly flowing trem style that was on Up for Blue. Here, what he keeps from that record is simply that it's the most dour Satanic Warmaster record. Yeah, it's um, it, it in so, and uh, and what he changes is the smoothly the smoothness in the plane. This can get us into the samples. It's um, this is much chunkier and more aggressive. Yeah. So this is when I tell people that like, you know, I want to hear less stuff that's all like sweetly flowing and uh and whatnot and and over over melodic and hook driven and that i want to hear things that are like direct physical and masculine this is a great example right stylistically these riffs are drawn from the same wellspring as a lot of the fruitiest nowadays stuff but taking it in a completely different direction uh, this is very where the last record was sort of like remote. This record is just down in the fucking dirt, punching someone with a gauntlet. Um, and so this the first track is our standards wave unscathed, uh, and you can hear some kind of kind of unexpected song structure stuff. He always like does simple but unexpected songwriting moves. Are a uh, signature for oppressive descent. Um, and you will hear the first riff is really a statement of intent. It is, uh, you can hear the roughness and you can hear this kind of disjunctive thing. The riff has three different timber timbers. It's not, his hand isn't staying in one place. You can hear it jumping from parts of the guitar to parts of the guitar. And the only thing stringing these chords together is physical force. Thank you. 
I think I might have actually isolated what makes those kinds of riffs like acceptable to you or not. It's like a All right, it, what? it's a very precise structural conceit. So at the end of his biggest, like most epic riffs, mm-hmm. um, instead of doing the natural he'll reach the the resolution chord and he'll just hang on to it instead of trying to descend it down to complete the rotation completely back into the originating chord for the riff. You like mm. having the stern half measure at the end of the phrase, you know, <laughs> just so it gives it a little bit of roughness, like sticking the landing and going back into the phrase again. Oh, I think I know what you mean. So the riff doesn't resolve within one iter. It it doesn't like return to the root before it starts again. Not not like completely. Yeah. Oh, that actually <laughs> that actually is how I think about riff. That's like actually just how I think about riffs in general. You, you like don't when like I write perfectly a riff, cyclical riffs. When I write a riff, I almost never just descend to the root before it loops again. Yeah. I always try to get it to drop back into itself. Yeah, and something. all the biggest riffs on that sample, they all do that drop into it. Interesting. That's a really good point. I mean, I, did, I didn't you know, even realize and, until I heard it, and then there were a few examples of it happening continuously. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I think you're on to. I I think you're on to something there in terms of like how my ear works, and certainly, certainly how I how I write stuff. Um. Yeah, and there's a, I mean, other than that, yeah, like, what else makes me like those? I mean, some of it's just in the, it's also in, like, they're stripped down. Um, You know, the kinds of things that I like to complain about now, right, are going to be these, like, I don't know, yeah, like, sort of, like, you know, lengthy, I I don't know, you know, just like fruity riffs, man, um, <laughs> with a lot of notes in them. I, I think, like, I complain about this once on every show now because I'm trying to, like, hammer this point home. So, like, I almost sound like a broken record. But, you know, this thing where, like, people hear the, the you know, the, the like, GBK, Argos, Lent, Vothana style, and they, like, play this weird game of telephone where they just exaggerate it until it becomes frilly. Right. Yeah, you you want or, the or, original version of it before it got yes. completely gussied up. Yeah. Yes, or they take the the take Satanic Warmaster riffs, right? Like the most florid riffs on uh, Corellian Satanist Madness, and then they miss the fact that those riffs all sound like, uh, you know, those riffs are all like lightning bolts. Um, yeah, and um, you know, yeah, shit like that. And so this this stuff is all like. Oppressive Descent is really good at writing riffs with lots of notes, which we're going to get to, right? He mm-hmm. can he can turn those sort of cascading chivalric phrases with the best of the Frenchmen. Um, however, a lot of this record is based on, like, well, what we just heard, like, the basic, you know, there's that sort of, like, you know, strutting initial riff, and then it gets into this the sequence of like those riffs as you, the ones you were talking about right the right um and those trade for a while and that's not normally how a song works he just does like the big one riff and then just starts trading on those twice through uh and 
Those are both, although they both have these big gratifying consonant chords, uh, they're just a few chords each. A few dense chords each. And then when he goes, we're back into the riff one for a while, and then he just lights into a blast. The song just takes off halfway through. Uh, and um, again, like there's the blasting part is really catchy and cool and very gripping. However, um, you can't isolate any one part of it as the big riff. And it's, in fact, really hard to like hum what is the cool part there. Because they're right? all cool parts. They're all cool parts, and they're also, like, often just a couple notes, right? Like, to me, the climax is where he's just, like, sawing on two chords. Like, <laughs> um, and, you know, there's just a lot of the riffing is coming from the, uh, I, I don't know. You know, they're, they're simple, powerful shapes, and he's, the fact that the whole blast part has a melodic arc to it comes from how each of these cool parts feeds into the next cool part. You know what I mean? No, yeah. There's yeah. there's a lot of internal momentum to this music, especially yeah. when he's doing those riff suite type arrangements like at the end of that sample, where you just have a linear progression of like three or four riffs yeah. used as sort of a mid-song break. Yeah. He, yeah, for him, the riff is not actually the fundamental unit of songwriting. Yeah, like it's a, he can, a full melodic sequence. He can play a big riff if he wants to, but he's usually way more interested in these like trading phrases or in these long sequences. Um, and you know, another thing, like, just want to get your get your thoughts on uh, about the especially about the whole tr- that whole passage, but especially the blasting stuff. Doesn't this sound a lot more like Ifernak and Pan American than the old stuff? I could definitely see that. I mean, I think I think all these guys who are on sort of like oh, cutting edge USBM are listening to the same general yeah. pool of artists, or even like elegiac, the sort of like really sort of the, oh, yeah. the rough hewn chords, especially in the blasting parts. Well, Oppressive Descent yeah. did a split with him like a couple years back. Oh so, fuck yeah. yeah, there you go. So it's like there's been some convergence with Outlaw Rock, mm-hmm. like. Oppressive Descent is still very much a black metal band. This is not very rock and roll or anything, or or particularly American in the thematics. But um, it's picked up on some cool... It's picked up on the parts I like best of that scene, which is the sort of the brawn to it. Mm-hmm. And there's another band that I've been meaning to listen to more. People on our Discord like them. But, you know, have you ever heard that Blutschfer thing? Uh, I've heard of it, but I don't think I've listened yet. I think it was one of the first USBM records that just went full full bore with the knights on the cover, mm-hmm. and so that's a connection. But it's it's uh, it's actually kind of spite extreme wingy. It's very vigorous USB, unusually vigorous USBM uh, <laughs> that I think also has something in common with this one. Anyway, speaking of vigorous, how about this next song title? <laughs> Limbs strewn across the battered snow. Um, like you said, there's not this not a vampire record, but there's a couple vampires, and. Uh, <laughs> This is a song that features some of those vampires, clearly. And it's got one of my favorite styles of French black metal riffs, which I refer to as the fainting vampire riff. 
<laughs> like it's a it's a it's a fussy sort of Victorian vampire who is so overcome with emotion that he collapses onto his fainting couch just because he is so sad and so evil at the same time. just such uncouth behavior at the vampire ball that it that its host nearly expired from shock fortunately the fainting couch was there to to break its fall (laughs) dude that's such an awesome sequence of riffs i i love this is like this is definitely one of the most florid things that happens across the entire record Mm -hmm. But boy, it fucking earns it. I mean, this is the end of the song. It's all building up to that sort of climax suite of riffs, which is kind of like a standard operating procedure on this record is, you know, the climactic moment is never a riff. It's a a sequence, which you kind of pointed out in the last sample. Um, but it's a consistent thing. Yeah, it's actually pretty cool that he had another one of those in like... You know, that's one of the more, as you said, one of the more elaborate riffs on the record. And he just had a, a, a an alternate version in the can and played that after. Right? <laughs> it's like, like there are, it, it's, um, you know, most bands would be lucky to have one. Yeah, this guy is able to whip out like three in a sequence yeah. like it's nothing. Um, but it, it, it's interesting because like in general, this is a very paired back record, but I think... With that pairing back, it allows moments like this to shine more brightly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the average riff on this record is probably a little bit simpler than on Alchemy and War, but the most complex parts are far more complex. And I think that contrast is really beneficial to the record as a whole. Um, just because this is a kind of black metal, this sort of... 
um, blocky traditional sort of U.S. one-man band style where it's easy for the stuff to slide by you. Um, like I was saying for the previous record also, because again, this is very homogenous material. Melodically, a lot of this is playing around in the same realm, but being able to have that contrast between simplicity and complexity adds that dimension that keeps the listener really engaged. I feel like there's kind of a number of different kinds of melodies on this record. Uh, like that kind of like, I don't know, the stuff that sounds more like, uh, there's stuff that's more sort of pentatonic Dorian or just like straight up Dorian that sounds more just like blaring trumpets, right? And yeah. then you've got some fainting vampire riffs. And then you've got some more just like rabbit punkish stuff. I don't know. I feel like there's a decent amount of variation of, uh, um, I, th- I yeah. think it, I think in, in like in like archetypes of riffs, yeah, there are. But I would say most of this floats around pretty consistent melodic points. Oh, yeah, there are some. Okay, fair. Uh, you know, also, well, we'll get to this with my last sample. I think some of that is very deliberate. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Like, um, we also got to talk about at some point about yeah, you you've before we we're talking before we started recording too. You know, you I think like you describe certain records as blocky, and I'm like not sure what you mean. And I I think like you were explaining before because like to me there's all sorts of sophisticated structural stuff happening all over this record in terms of say like the way that he'll compose a chorus as a sequence of riffs or. Uh, the way he'll have these kinds of nested structures or uh, whatnot. But you mean something, you, you don't just mean like, say, simple or clunky when you say blocky. No, it's it's not really, it's meant to be descriptive, not really a, a, a qualitative judgment. Um, hmm. I'm just meaning more in terms of, I, I guess it's sort of like the opposite of full band energy. Um, like oppressive descent's music tends to be based on figures of like four or eight repetitions. There's not a lot in terms of like transitional phrasing between those riffs. Um, there's not a lot of like dynamic play in general. Like this music is a, it's, it's executed in a very homogenous fashion, um, melodically and rhythmically, which is good. This kind of music should be delivered that way. Um, I guess just in the sense where you can hear that these are songs that are written in their entirety on guitar and then drums and vocals are placed on top of them. Okay. I, I definitely hear the written entirely on guitar thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I get what you mean about riffs being pretty, like riffs being discrete, not having transitions and things like that. Um, to, I think about the four and eight, I would almost say that's not how this guy works. I think like most things, many things on this record repeat twice. Um, like that whole sort of set of trading riffs at on my first sample, that was like two, 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 two. Um, or when he blasts in that like blasting fanfare part at the end, uh, 
that whole sequence was like two reps of this, two of this, two of this. There might have been like four on one of those. But like, well, he's usually saving that for his like riff sweet sequences that are like the climax of songs. I I understand that that it's like, well, I think one thing he's done is actually condense. I think that was a more apt description of the last one, where sometimes it seemed like he would arbitrarily sustain, like sustain something too long just because it's like, oh, you got to go four, you got to go eight, or well, there's like there's definitely there's more riffs and per song on this record also. Yeah, that's, there's no, now there is not that sense that things are being repeated just because one goes for four or eight. Mm-hmm. It's, it, I think there's more, uh, yeah, more range in how long things repeat. And yeah, more riffs per song, more shit happening. The other thing I think, you know, I almost consider blocky songwriting a strength. Like, in terms of what you mean, about, like, just going from one section directly to the next without transitions. Oh, yeah. No, it's, 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 an, it's not a bad thing at all. It's, like, it's related to what you said about what I like about riffs earlier. Like, I like a, each riff sets up the next, drops into the next one or whatever. But you like, um, you like it to drop in with force. You don't want to just, like, elegantly slip in. You know, yeah, exactly. Like, like, like a man with a long, thin penis. You know, or, uh, like, yeah, or like, like that vampire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that vampire with his his long, thin penis. Um, <laughs> the uh, um, no, but well, I guess no. On this record, the vampire has a massive penis. Um, the uh, he's he's he may be on the fainting couch, but uh, you know, the um. <laughs> But, but like, so, yes, I, I know what you mean. So, like, yeah, I guess there's a, some sort of, like, songwriting values that come from hardcore and thrash and stuff where it's like, yeah, the really tight songs are the ones where it is just, like, this riff goes to next riff. Yeah. Um, and there's also the aspect that we've talked about a few times on the show where you listen to black metal for like heaviness and aggression, which is just not like a, a, a primary concern of mine at all. For yeah. This yeah. yeah. I, I get that. But yeah. So the, so, okay. Blo- so different senses of what blocky means. I think I, I think I get you. Um, this, let's just say he's not doing uh 16 bar crescendo builds. No, no, no. There's, we're, we're <laughs> yeah. not doing it. We're not doing any forest stuff here or anything. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, real quick, talking about good riffs, let's go to, I think we both might agree this is the best song on the album. It's um, definitely one of my favorite. There's kind of cool shit on every track, but yeah, this might be my favorite. Yeah, Gates of Bitterness. Uh, this has probably my favorite big elaborate riff on the record. There is something that happens in this riff. There's some sort of like chord structure or chord progression that I am just a an immediate simp for. I don't know what it is, but you're the guy that has more melodic music theory than me. So let's listen and let's see if you can parse out what I need to hear in my life for the rest of it.
So while we were listening to that, I, apparently we both kind of like landed on the same place where we've heard those sorts of chord intervals before and we think that it's like summoning right well w- w- which part exactly interested the whole thing or just like the or well it's it's specifically the turnaround this... halfway through the riff yeah yeah where it kind of moves into like a, a related key that you know it is a very fucking like Lord of the Rings type thing. It's just, it comes out of nowhere, and I'm just a huge sucker for things that relate to progressions like that. You know, yeah, I was going to say it sounds like basically just like a classic like swords and sorcery movie or medieval documentary kind of melody. yeah it it's really a very does. soundtracky melody very, very like, beginning of gladiator yeah <clears throat> the second part of the riff especially the the sort of big kind of sentimental yeah kind of sentimental more like like it's it's very like um opening credits or something um but the uh I, I also really like the part where it goes, you know, da, 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 da. Like, yeah. it's like he goes from the root, he's, he starts going up from the root, and then he goes to, like, the second or something, and it's a major chord. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of just cool, that's a very cool, fully worked out chord progression happening there, and I don't think I can really add much more theory knowledge to it well i'm starting to realize i think everything we've sampled are just like big riff suites across this record like we're just we're just literally plucking the giant climax moments out of all these songs and plopping them in here another thing i really liked there was that there's a there's an answering riff um in between those two iterations of the the you know the long giant riff there's a um Let's. I. It's this kind of diving riff. It's the long riff is so long. It's hard to. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm trying to click to it. Yeah, I love the dum 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 or and whatever. However, he turns it around. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing is, another band would do that very briefly as a sort of like you know, interstitial riff, like to punctuate it and then go to something else. He like, like, I mean, that, that's a kind of epic riff that I love. And that just sort of that, that Falcon dive movement. And he just hangs on that for like a long time. He repeats that phrase, maybe like eight or 16 times. And he starts layering on, um, he starts like really just like feathering out the chords in this very like noisy way mm-hmm. and layering on a bunch of other voices. And, you know, that's a good example of to me an aggressive black metal riff. And he gives that the time to breathe before he launches the that big uh you know, that big progression again. Mm-hmm. It's it's just really beautiful part. It's like the highlight of the record to me. Yeah, yeah, the whole song. I mean, I like the the you know the you got the tail end of the sort of hardcore stuff and earlier in the song. The earlier the part of the song is much more abrasive. It that would be another thing. The songs really change character as they go. 
That is true. Yeah. Like, like Gates of Bitterness, like the thing that initially grabbed me about Gates of Bitterness is that for the first half, it's just like, like a ripper, um, and very abrasive. And then it just like turns like that. Um, as you were saying with that head fake. <laughs> oh yeah. That's such a hilarious um, head fake. This little sawing two chord thing that yeah. should have an interrupting dark throne riff right after. <laughs> God, have we even used that this year? Jesus. It, there haven't been, well, partly we've, I think partly we've been more grateful when we've heard them from time to time. <laughs> Just but, to uh, remember what black was no, like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we don't use it much um, anymore. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So that is, uh, yeah, that, that part's great. Um, and then let's get to the last part. Um, and so let's here, before we get into it, I'll say like one sort of, before we get into the last sample, it would be like, in terms of where to go from here, right? I definitely feel like this is a, oh yeah, one last overall positive thing is just like the, I love the the guitar tone. uh, Yeah. And like, it's very just forward, brash, noisy, pardon me, burp, noisy. Um, I think you, you brought it up, but I, uh, but I agree. I think we both would prefer if the vocals weren't like USBM distorted. Yeah, I mean, that's always been kind um, of a convention of USBM, but I've just never been mm-hmm. fond, real fond of it. It 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 spreads it out and diffuses it and makes them less, like, you know, less harsh. Yeah, it's like in an effort to make it harsher, it paradoxically sounds yeah. less harsh. Yes, and I think for that style, these sound pretty good. <laughs> I mean, there's there are some really cool parts where it's like, damn, yeah, he is just pitched shrieking over and over again, and it's, like, awesome, but... It would sound even cooler without the distortion. But anyway, last overall thing is like, so in some sense, I feel like the band has just like totally come into its own. But one thing that might seem like a nitpick, but I think kind of matters because black metal is about the total passage is I'm not sure he's yet totally figured out like the aesthetic, the the, the aesthetic presentation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's not yet clear so like the cover has, I mean, obviously I love knights. The cover has some some sick medieval battle. However, it's kind of just like the thing that's going on right now is covers like that, um, and it's sort of different from some of his other covers. And it can be hard to get a sense of like what exactly the vibe he's going for is. Um, and I think I know what it is, but I'd be interested to see how he could bring it out more. The music obviously has its own mode, m- mood, right? But, like, what what's the sort of the connected concept, right? You know, and w- all that shit matters, right? You know, the mystique of the early Norwegian bands, right, has to do with these fully realized concepts they all had. But, um, interestingly, um, I feel... This might be the one band where I feel like he should lean more into the Satan stuff. Um, it's like every time he writes a song about Lucifer, it just kills. So here is um, Eternal Luciferian Stronghold.
great to have you back, buddy. Nobody else would include the janky under a funeral moon riff without you here to host. Yeah, well, I mean, those are an important part of the record. Um, like, that's enough, like, the French stuff is important, but, like, um, there's a lot of just, like, buzz sawing Norwegian 90s trem. I mean, another record I think, another band I think of throughout this record is Gorgoroth. Um, not really in any of the details, just in the very sort of simple, direct, but very full spectrum presentation you get in the first three records. Um, especially the first two, but more with this kind of in the red aggression that's more on the third one. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and yeah, so he does a really cool thing there, which is the initial trem riff um, is just, you know, that's all just like tritones and there's like internal dissonance in some of those chords uh, and, you know, half and half steps. It's a very chromatic Norwegian BM riff, but the rhythms are like folk melody rhythms. It's very flowing. It it flows like some of his other more sort of uh you know uh consonant melodic uh you know big riffs. And it's actually a motif he's already set up earlier on the record on victorious funeral uh and then that rhythm basically holds into that gigantic uh climax riff there um so there is uh so instead of just being like a slideshow of cool riffs or a set of really good songs this has been um composed as an album in a really impressive way um and you know there he's you know it 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 might not be as it might not wear its sophistication it it might not be as sort of you know this is obviously working at a smaller scale and on a smaller canvas than a record like the atigar but there's a similar knack for passing ideas through different mediums and voicings um and yeah, back to the thematics, right? It's like, um, you know, like, so th- it seems like maybe there's always a, very often, right, he, he's into this military history stuff, World War One, knights, whatever. Makes sense, and it obviously goes with the Satanism. I mean, that combination is pretty essential to, like, black metal in general, right? Um, and... I think, like, if you take, you know, the, you know, song titles like this and the kind of passion that the, the pure immediate personal investment that shines through in uh, the Lucifer songs, I feel like that, you know, the, the, the aesthetic and spiritual core of the band uh, could really coalesce around that.
Oh, 